Greetings and welcome to the Flyby, your bi-weekly dose of rapid-fire board game reviews. We have another terrific episode for you. I'll be starting us off this time with a review of Above and Below by Ryan Lockett. Ruth runs us through Oracle of Delphi by Stefan Feld. Next up, Stephanie tells us about Gruff by Brent Critchfield. Lindsay enlightens us about Tyrants of the Underdark from Gale Forest 9 and Wizards of the Coast. And Mason wraps it all up with Biblios by Steve Finn. Hi, it's Mike, and today I want to tell you about one of my all-time favorite games, Above and Below. I know I should save some of these for later, but this one is so good, I just have to talk about it. Above and Below was another one of those eye-opening gaming experiences for me. It was the first game I played that involved storytelling that worked in a way I understood. I tried role-playing in college with mixed results, as I constantly pestered the DM with, what are my options? Enter Above and Below by Ryan Lockett. Solidly Euro, dripping with theme, and storytelling with options to choose from. In Above and Below, you are starting a new village. Your last one didn't end so well. Thanks a lot, Barbarians. At its core, Above and Below is a pretty good worker placement game, which is probably why it works for me. You start with three villagers. Each turn you put one or more villagers to work by moving them to the exhausted part of your player board. You can take buildings or other supplies from the main board, but you can't really block other players like in traditional worker placement games, since your villagers stay in your village. To regain use of your villagers, at the end of each round you move exhausted villagers back to the ready area by allowing them to rest in a bed. Conveniently, each player starts with one house that has three beds. If you don't have enough beds for each exhausted villager, you must choose which villagers have slept and are therefore available for the next round. There are other ways to get your villagers back, such as using potions and cider, but trust me, beds are the most reliable way to get a good night's sleep. Your main standard actions in Above and Below are train and build. Your villagers with the feather in the upper left corner are your trainers. You use them to recruit new persons to your village, paying the monetary cost to train them and bring them on board. You start with only one trainer, but you can recruit others with this skill, such as Sir Terry Pratchett, and frankly, who wouldn't want Sir Terry Pratchett in their village? I love the villager art. The diversity of characters in Ryan's games just astounds me. The villagers with the hammers in the upper left corner are your builders. They're the ones that help you expand your village by allowing you to buy and build houses and outposts. Buildings are important because they give you beds or points or goods or many other useful things. There are four general classifications of buildings. Key buildings, which are limited and randomly chosen each game, are crucial early buildings as they are cheap and give you bonuses that help you throughout the game such as re-roll abilities, or other ways to get or use coins. I tried adding more than the recommended number of key buildings once, just to show people what the options were, and the game got a bit unbalanced, so I wouldn't recommend it. Star buildings give you end-game scoring bonuses. They're generally a good guide for what you should consider focusing on to get the most points, but they're expensive and you usually can't afford them until the last couple of rounds. In between you have houses and outposts. These are the buildings that help drive your economy, supplying goods which you can harvest, resources, and even beds for your villagers. The main difference between houses and outposts are that houses are built above ground, and if you can afford the building, you can always build it. Outposts are below ground. In addition to having to pay the cost for the building, you must also have an open and available cave card from a previous exploration. So what is exploration? The best part of the game, in my opinion. To explore, you must take two or more villagers on an expedition. You select the top cave card, move your villagers to the card, and then roll a die to see which adventure you will go on. One of the other players takes the encounter book and reads the corresponding chapter through to the choices that the player must make. Just make sure you don't read the possible rewards for the choices. 
At this point, the player must choose which action they will take. The actions have a minimum number of points associated with them. Once the player has decided, they then roll a die for each character and compare the values to the die depictions at the top of the villagers. You tally up the number of lanterns you've scored and then compare it to the number required. If you met or exceeded the number, you have successfully explored the cave. The reader reads off any success text, gives you your reward, and now you have an empty cave in which to build an outpost. If you are below the minimum number, you have failed. If you wish, you may choose to exert your villagers to gain extra success points for each villager exerted, but exerted villagers require two rounds of resting in beds to return back to active use. But sometimes it's worth it as exploring may be random, but the payoffs can be pretty big in terms of money or goods or new villagers or reputation. Then again, they can also be pretty small. You never really know. And while I generally hate randomness, I have to admit I just love these stories and the choices you get. You could end up helping someone in need, being tricked by someone you think means well, defending yourself from creatures, or just having some fun with the magician while his rabbit fixes his coach. Who knows? At the end of seven rounds, you get points for buildings, points for goods, and points for reputation. The player with the most points wins. Another reason why I like Above and Below is because there's no one way to win. I've seen players win with exploring, others with lots of buildings, and one who bought lots of villagers in that bonus building. You just have to roll with whatever is working for you that game. Except for me. I'll mostly just be exploring, because win or lose, that's where I'm having a blast in the game. Thanks for listening, and if you have any adventures you'd like to tell me about, you can reach me on Twitter, at Mike Risley. Hello, 5 by listeners. It's Ruth here, fresh from PressCon and ready to talk to you about the latest game from one of my favorite designers, Stefan Feld. Oracle of Delphi was released in 2016 with art by Dennis Lohassen, and my copy was published by Hall Games and Tasty Minstrel. In Delphi, players have been assigned 12 tasks by Zeus and must race to be the first to complete those tasks and sail back to the god to win. If more than one player manages to do so in the same round, the game then goes to tiebreakers. Most of the tasks involve picking up and delivering statues or offerings to the correct locations, but players must also find the right areas to build three temples and defeat three monsters. Along the way, they'll endure titan attacks that may leave them injured and in need of rest, dedicate time to the gods in an attempt to gain powerful game-breaking favors, and most importantly, they'll consult the oracle each step of the way to determine what actions can be performed auspiciously. You see, at the end of a player's turn, they'll roll three dice representing consulting the famous Oracle of Delphi. Their results will determine what they can do in their next turn. But unlike some dice games, the dice determine the target of their actions and not the actions themselves. You see, everything on the board has been coated with one of six colors, and those colors are found on the faces of the dice. A single die can be used for a ton of possible actions, but that action must be performed on a space or piece of the corresponding color. So a blue die can be used to sail to a blue space, pick up a blue offering, worship the blue god, build a blue statue, or more. And I really liked this way of using the dice. It felt less limiting than having the dice show icons for sailing or fighting monsters, but it still limits your turn enough to force you to work within those constraints and plan out a good move. And getting to roll them at the end of your turn is critical, as it helps reduce downtime and AP since you have an entire round to figure out what on earth to do with your dice. The game also has a super variable setup, with everything being placed randomly at the start. 
But with the exception of temple locations, which are hidden and must be discovered, once it's set up, everything is known to the players, which lets you really plan your moves. And the only reason something won't be there when you get there is because someone else got there first. It's a really nice way to use randomness, as each game has a very different map and makes it play a little differently, but there's nothing within the game shifting and ruining your plans. Now I really like Delphi. It's a super tight race game that tends to come down to the tiebreakers more often than not, and so efficiency is key. That being said, the game has a couple of issues that I feel I have to mention. The first is that the game does include a miss a turn mechanism, which can upset and annoy some players. Players can be injured by unsuccessful monster rolls or by the end of round titan attack, and if a player has too many injury cards or three of the same color at the start of their turn, they have to forgo that turn and simply discard some cards. It's actually feasible for a player to miss two turns in a row this way, which can be extremely frustrating and upsetting. It doesn't bother me too much that it's in the game, but I know that can be an issue for others. The other problem of the game, however, was a major issue for me. As I mentioned, everything in the game is color-coded, and usually there's a symbol used to double-code. However, not everything is double-coded, and two of the colors, the red and pink shades used in the game, are extremely difficult to tell apart, especially under artificial light sources. My husband and I have no issue with color vision, and yet it was so bad and so frustrating to plan our turns and then realize that we had completely mistaken a color that we actually painted all of the red spots on the punch boards and the red wooden pieces in a darker shade. I've never felt the need to paint a game board to fix a color before, and it was super frustrating that this issue wasn't corrected in what is an otherwise well-produced game. Now, many people have an idea of what they consider to be a typical Fell game, and that usually involves tons of paths to victory and ways that you get points for everything. Delphi doesn't meet those criteria. There's no points at all in the game, and the only path to victory is to complete the task and win the race back. So for that reason, if you consider yourself a major Feld fan, it may still be a try before you buy. But I still highly recommend the game. I love it despite its flaws, and I see myself pulling this one out and playing it for a while to come. So if you could understand the potential issues and still look past them, and if you like Pick Up and Deliver, then I definitely recommend it. And until next time, you can find me at sequentialgamer.wordpress.com or on Twitter at Roof. That's an R, four O's, and then an F. Thanks for listening. During the days when Magic of the Gathering was hitting its peak, I was far too busy being a surly teen transitioning into a young adult who made questionable decisions. By the time I had immersed myself into the gaming hobby, the idea of playing a game involving cards where you battle someone else seemed so intimidating. Like, a train had very clearly left the station for me, and I've always shied away from games of this style. It just all seemed way too intense. I know, I know, my bias is ridiculous. I will admit that freely. So color me surprised when my bias turned to curiosity after being introduced to the game Gruff. Released in 2015, and with a standalone expansion released in 2017, Gruff is a deck builder about mutated monster goats. Designed and published by Brent Critchfield for his studio Woe, 
Gruff is a game where players draft a shepherd to lead a team of three player-chosen monster goats called Gruffs. Players then build their battle deck by choosing eight cards from each Gruff's individual deck, forming their stack of 24 cards to draw and play from. Some goats may be best suited to battle and push through the enemy line because of a high level of mean, which is their attack strength. Some might be best used as a defense due to their high level of fat, and some can allow you to play higher cost cards by increasing your shepherd's crazy level because they're just so darn weird. And herein lies what, I think, got me to think twice about this game whose mechanics I normally want nothing to do with. Mutant goats who are just so off they make their owner go crazy, and that allows me to battle more fiercely? Sure. And there's something kind of endearing of thinking of fat as just my means of defense, both in this game and in real life. Players take turns declaring attacks, buffing their opponent's attacks, mitigating damage already dealt, and preparing for the future onslaught through simple-to-understand card play and player actions. When it's your turn, you first have an opportunity to deflect an attack headed your way. Once that's done, you activate one of your unactivated goats, or if all three goats have been tapped, you first reset your squad and then choose which of your barnyard brawlers you want to use next. Then you'll have the chance to play cards from your hand if you have the crazy level to do so. Cards can be used to increase attack, increase defense, allow your goat to shift places in your front line, set up an enemy goat with some sort of disadvantage, and so on and so on. Most of these things will seem very familiar to those who've played a battling card game before, but nothing seems too foreign for a deck-building noob like me. Once you're done playing cards, you get one final action, which can be used to wage an attack on an opponent's goat, grow your active goat stats, resurrect one of your fallen brethren, or move your herd around. Victory is declared when you have defeated all your opponent's goats or knocked player shepherds down to zero health. The game is advertised for two to four players, but I found this game really plays best with two, and I wouldn't recommend for more than three especially if you're wanting to stay in that 30-ish minute advertised playing time. So why this game over another deck builder? Well, repeated listeners to the 5 by will undoubtedly attribute my love of Gruff because of the theme. Sure, that's part of it. But well beyond that, it's the balance and forgiving nature of the deck building itself. As I mentioned earlier, you build your playing deck by choosing 8 cards from each drafted goat's deck. Each goat only has 15 cards to choose from, so there's a comfort in knowing that I have more than a 50% chance of picking my deck well. Honestly, even when I chose cards at random, I still managed to win a game or two, and I'm able to push through my deck-building fear and just enjoy the lightness and whimsy of the game's theme. So, am I a convert to these types of games? Maybe. But I can say that Gruff is, without a doubt, the battle deck game for folks like me who don't really play battle deck games. Gruff, from Studio Woe, can be purchased directly from the designer for $35. This has been Stephanie Stone Rob for 5 by Games, and until next time, stay playful. 
Hello, it's Lindsay here, and today I'm going to tell you a little bit about Tyrants of the Underdark, a 2-4 player game designed by Peter Lee, Rodney Thompson and Andrew Veen, with artwork by over 50 different studios and artists, and primarily published by Wizards of the Coast. I had a hankering for this game after seeing some friends post it on Instagram, and thinking it looked just a little bit cool. I saw coloured shields making routes across a sprawling purple and black map, an assortment of cards and tokens and little hooded figures, and intrigued I went off to investigate. What I found was a debt-building area control game, filled with fantastical, sometimes ghastly creatures, and of course dragons. I placed it firmly on top of my wish list where it sat for a few months, until I received it as a birthday present at the beginning of February. Since then I've been playing it every available opportunity, I can hands down tell you I absolutely love it. And I've been trying to put my finger on what I'm enjoying quite so much, but first let me give you the gist of what Tyrants is about. You choose two of the four half-decks for your game. You start with 10 basic cards, draw 5 into your hand and keep 5 on your player board. You each place a troop on the central board and place unaligned troops, which are your neutral player, in their designated spots. You aim to branch out from your starting points to take control of the various sites on the board, many of which will gain you a victory point token that can be used for power whilst you're the dominating presence, or power and a VP chip when you have total control. There is a central marketplace where you can buy cards and two types of low-cost card always available. Every time a card is purchased in the marketplace and you one is drawn from the main deck to replace it, you use your cards for their resources, either influence or power, and or a special ability. Your overall aim is to take control over as many sites as possible, pick up as many VP chips as you can, and ideally promote cards into your inner circle, that whilst removing from the game, increases the card's value at end of game scoring. I think what I liked instantly was how easy it was to pick up and play. Over the last few years I've been playing quite a bit of Dominion and Legendary games by Upper Deck, so the basic deck building element was familiar territory. Each deck is a little bit different. For example, the demonic cards include a separate insane outcast deck, which are your basic pesky deck cloggers that give you points deductions at the end of the game. Dragons allow you to devour cards in the market, perhaps because you want to move the marketplace along, or maybe you don't want your opponent to pick up a certain card, but you get my drift. Each deck has something special about it. So there's a high replayability factor because combinations of half deck make each game a little bit different, and it's fun to find out what your favourite combinations are. I also appreciate all the different choices I have in the game and what routes I'm going to take. In in order to beat my opponent. I enjoy figuring out my hand each turn, predicting what's going to come next, viewing what's available for purchase and figuring out how I'm going to progress. I especially like the elemental deck as I have a focus ability and these allow you to tap cards onto each other which means gaining greater resources or promoting a card or drawing more from your deck so each turn can be pretty epic when you're using the elementals. It's also quite a forgiving game. There's always opportunities to swing the pendulum back into your favour if you start to lag behind. It's a really intense battle for control. I'm very much into heavy conflict and that's why I like my area control games. There's something so satisfying about seeing my army take over areas of the board and battling back and forth to take control of the sites. In a two-player game, Aramicus is especially desirable and your opponent really wants to get that control back as soon as possible to prevent you from racking up the extra points whilst you have control. Control. And this brings me on to my other favourite thing about tyrants, the points. End of game scoring has never been so good. You tot up the control of your sites, the troops you eliminated, your VP chips, the promoted cards and every card in your deck for its basic value. And I just love that exciting moment of wondering just how well you did. It works very well as a two player game I think. The only difference from a two player plus is that you are only using the middle section of the board. But it's definitely not a friendly two player so you've been warned that there's a lot of mucking up each other's plans and ruthlessly eliminating troops. I also like that even though it's a D&D themes game you don't have to be a hardcore fan to like and play it because I'm not and it's had no bearing on my enjoyment of the game whatsoever. What I'm very excited for is the up and coming expansion 
Junction, Aberrations and Undead that include two new half decks to integrate with Tyrants. And I mean, there's quite a lot of cards already. There's 260 to be exact. And every game so far I've spotted one I haven't previously. But I can't help myself. And like a game, I just think, yes, more of this, please. I'm very sure that with continued popularity we'll see more expansions in the future. Tyrancy is possibly not the game for everyone, and as I mentioned earlier, perhaps not the most friendly two-player either. But if you're anything like me, you could possibly get just a little bit addicted and go slightly power mad. Thanks for listening. You can see and hear more from me on my YouTube channel or Instagram where I'm Shiny Half Meeples, or Twitter as capital S, capital H Meeples, or my blog www.shinyhalfmeeplesblog or wordpress.com. Bye for now. Hi, I'm Mason Weaver. Let's talk about Biblios. Biblios, by designer Steve Finn, was originally released in 2007 by Dr. Finn's Games as Scriptorium, and then later as Scripts and Scribes. Yellow picked it up in 2010 and now retitled Biblios with new artwork. It's gone through multiple English reprints and is now available worldwide. I don't like the term filler. Uh, I usually say small box game or short game. While there's not room in my life for giant box miniatures games, I can never own enough small box card games. I'm also a loyal Dr. Finn's Games fan. I think that Steve Finn is one of the best independent designers and publishers working today. What I'm saying is that I'm deeply biased towards Biblios, but I recognize it. So what is Biblios? Well, it's a number of things, and while it's simple to learn and quick to play, I've struggled to define it succinctly. It's a hand management, set collection, auction, pressure luck, area control, market manipulation game, and a deck of cards. The core of Biblios is a type of card allocation that I've come to call the Finn Draw, or Witch Pile, or sometimes just the Biblios mechanic. It works like this. In a two-player game, you draw three cards on your turn one at a time. You keep one, you give one to your opponent, and you discard the other. This happens in any order, but you have to put one card in each pile. So if you discard the first, then you keep the second. You're forced to give your opponent the third card, regardless of how valuable it is or how much you want it. It can be a pretty brutal burn when the card you have to give up is the exact thing you need. But what are these cards, and why does it matter who gets them? Well, since Biblios' set collection is area control, um, I guess it's not really area control, it's area majority or set majority, I don't know, it's basically area control. You're trying to get the most of a color to score the available points in each category. The cards are one of five different colors, uh, money, or plus-minus cards that change the market. And the market is tracked by dice that you don't roll, which is genius and I'm going to steal it. I realize there are some people who are annoyed by dice in a game you don't roll, but get over it, it's a good mechanic. In the first half of Biblios, you're taking turns allocating cards until the deck is out. Now that by itself would be a better game than a lot of other things I've played. But in the second half, you're all bidding on the discard pile one card at a time. You can spend the money in your hand on colored set cards, or you can spend unwanted set cards to get more money. The market-changing cards let you increase or decrease the in-game value of each color. The fluctuating market is the magic that sets Biblios apart from everything else. You could have every single red card, but they might only be worth two points. Your opponent's one-card advantage over you in blue might be worth five points to them. It all depends on how you've manipulated the market. I didn't mention that it's monastery-themed, but it is. You're a medieval monk collecting supplies to create manuscripts, but it's honestly not really super relevant. It could be about pretty much anything, but the art is lovely, and the board game market certainly isn't saturated with monastic titles. Component quality is fine, though I wish the cards were a little thinner and a little snappier. This deck doesn't riffle shuffle well, and it would be virtually impossible to bridge shuffle. The tracking dice are big, chunky, and the colors are easy to tell apart. The box is pretty neat, uh, it looks like a book, and while not a size that fits super well into my ecosystem of small boxes, it's also not too big, and it comes with a very nice custom insert. 
Biblios is highly interactive, scales well at all player counts, is beautifully illustrated, and is incredibly cheap, always under $20 and often under $15. It's another great game I could teach you in 5 minutes, play in 15, and replay endlessly forever into the future. If you're looking for games with high return on investment and super low cost per play over their lifetime, Biblios is a champ. It's worth noting that there's also Biblios the Dice Game, which is itself a reworking of the earlier Scripps and Scribes the Dice Game. I own both, and while Scripps and Scribes is a fun game, Biblios Dice is far superior. It's a great dice-checking area majority game, worth checking out. It's published by Dr. Finn's Games directly, and you can pick it up from his website or from Amazon. So, who should buy Biblios? People who like set collection. People who don't mind direct economic conflict. People who are desperate for two-player auction games that actually work. People who can take a touch of luck in a short card game. And people who wish they were 14th century monks. I give Biblios 7 out of 7 viewings of the 1987 Monastery Murder Mystery film In the Name of the Rose. I'm Mason Weaver, and you can find me on Twitter at Mason A. Weaver. Thanks for listening to The Five By. If you'd like to follow us, please do so on Twitter at Five By Games, or like us on Facebook at facebook.com slash Five By Games. Join our BGG Guild number 2810. You can listen to The Five By on iTunes, Stitcher, or Google Play, and don't forget your five-star reviews. Or you can follow all of our links at fivebygames.com.